there's this whole other level of humanity in these interactions that's I've felt personally emerge over the past couple of months. And with that, there's been, I think, a renewed focus on mental health and some of the more interpersonal and human dynamics that come not only in leading an organization, but also being someone who works at a company that is dealing with a lot of this uncertainty. Hey, it's Adam Schoenfeld. Welcome back to the Built in Seattle podcast, where I chat with Seattle's top entrepreneurs, investors, and business leaders about how they think and how they operate. On this episode, I talked with Julie Sandler, who's a managing director at Pioneer Square Labs, or PSL. Before PSL, she was an investor at Madrona. She spent time at Microsoft and Amazon and has been in the startup community for the last decade or so. Julie has an incredible reputation working with entrepreneurs, and I think you'll hear that come out in this conversation. We talked about what it's like to be investing during this uncertain time, a little behind-the-scenes look at the kinds of conversations Julie's having with her portfolio companies, and how she's coaching them to keep humanity in their decision-making as they approach what to do now and as this crisis evolves. She talked about how they need conviction and speed in the face of uncertainty. I hope you enjoy the conversation and learning from Julie. I'm here with the one, the only, Julie Sandler. Welcome, Julie. Hi, Adam. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. I've been a big fan of yours for a long time. It's funny because we both grew up in Seattle (laughs) and knew each other. And then several years later, we crossed paths again professionally and personally. Um, it, awesome. It's one of the magical things about Seattle. I think since, since we were kids, uh, like we were in Sunday school together, I've known your whole family for, for ages. So it's really fun to get to do this with you now. It's crazy. It doesn't happen to me too often. Do you, does that happen to you a lot? Surprisingly, no. Surprisingly, no. It feels like, uh, while a lot of folks from growing up stuck around and are building their lives here, it's always just kind of special to find multiple dimensions of intersection, both the personal, the family, as well as, as professional. It's really neat when it happens. Yeah, I love that about our community. So you went to business school, you spent some time at Microsoft and Amazon, and then you got into investing pretty early in your career at, at Madrona first and now at uh, Pioneer Square Labs. How long has that been in total? Oh my goodness. Well, so I first got engaged with the startup community during an internship in business school. And I actually was, I worked at Teach Street, which was one of Madrona's portfolio companies and got to know the Madrona team through that experience. That was, I think, 2009, 2010. And then a couple of years after that, I joined Madrona as, you know, a, a wet behind the ears associate. And so that it's been, I think, seven plus years now that, uh, that I've been in the venture capital ecosystem specifically. And I joined PSL in 2017. So it's been a little over three years. That's crazy. Because PSL is a startup itself. And to me, it sort of seems like yesterday that it was founded, but I guess <laughs> it has been a few years now. Yeah, just a few. We, we still feel like babies. We still feel like, uh, you know, a little startup, you know, tip on our shoulder, excited to, to grow quickly in this community. But, but yeah, it, it's amazing how three or four years can feel both short and long in the context of so much progress happening in your local community. It's interesting because when I think of PSL, and I know a lot of others that I talk to feel this way as well, 
you all have kind of risen quickly in terms of the amount of capital you have to invest in terms of the brand and um, just what you're doing in the early stage. I think you've kind of quickly become one of those prolific investors. Why do you think it's been able to rise so quickly? Well, first of all, that's such nice feedback to hear um, make, makes my day. You know, I, I think we're, we're fortunate in the people that we have on our team. You know, almost every single person on our team has been a founder of some variety at some point in their career. And we've got you know, a deep bench both on the operational as well as, you know, the, the investor VC side of things. And so we were able to mobilize a lot of resources, both locally and, and, and nationally pretty quickly to, to put together both a studio at the outset and, and now we've got both the studio and a, and a venture capital fund. And if I think of your time in investing and the early stage in Seattle, it's just been this dramatic growth in the options that entrepreneurs have. What's that growth look like from where you sit? And I guess I'm also curious, like, do we have enough early stage capital and investment here now to support the demand? Well, I don't know a single person on the founder or investor side who would feel that we have enough capital available for the quality early stage companies and undertakings that are happening in this region. And that's, it's been the case for a while, but in light of the fact that you have seen new funds mobilize, it's kind of an amazing statement to make. Uh, when I talk with investors from other parts of the country, Seattle has quickly emerged as you know, this hot area that's still a little bit of a secret, like a lot of folks, when they come to Seattle to engage with companies and with the firms up here, they sort of say, yeah, like, I'm really hoping our competitors down here in the Bay Area don't, don't necessarily get wise to the idea that, that Seattle is this hot spot, this hugely powerful innovation ecosystem that it's become. So while we're, I think, totally underserving ourselves from a homegrown capital perspective, I'm starting to see a lot more out of region capital get wise to the opportunity here. That's interesting. Are you seeing that even in the early stage where, where you guys spend time? We love collaborating with out of region investors. So we're trying to help facilitate that. I think it's always been the case for, you know, series A and beyond that, boy, if you invest in Seattle, it's just like a two hour hop from the Bay Area or from any other number of, of investment you know, hotbeds around the country. But beyond that, I think, you know, here we're starting to see more seed investment happen with out-of-region partners that we, you know, love collaborating with. And I think at least up until the current crisis that we're in, folks are really easy and ready to, to hop on a plane to, to engage in that way. Absolutely. Well, let's talk about the current environment that we're in a little bit, because I think it would seem that we have our heads in the sand if we don't uh, cover that. I, I'm curious, just with everything that's happening in the world, how has it changed the way that you and PSL operate? Well, you know, beyond you know the elements of operational change that you know all companies are, are facing right now with the move to work from home and more virtual collaboration, the way that we've spent our time has has evolved pretty significantly over the past you know six to eight weeks since this really you know, hit the Seattle region. We've always prioritize from a time perspective, engaging with portfolio companies and founders and the boards that, that we're involved with. We've always spent a disproportionate amount of time supporting the portfolio, but it has become even more uh, intense. We have not quite 30 companies in our portfolio, uh, but right now in a given day, I mean, I'm on the phone, I'm on Zoom with probably four to five different CEOs 
um, engaging around a lot of new topics that were on nobody's radar two months ago. Um, we're working hard to set up connections, not only you know, between people at individual companies so that they can communicate better, but also connections between CEOs, helping them manage emerging opportunities like this PPP program that you know, has been the big to do over the past few weeks, workforce and morale management, the pain of, of, of cost cutting that many companies have found themselves having to go through. You know, since early March, whether you're a company that is experiencing direct headwinds or even tailwinds from this financial and health crisis, it's just been blunt force trauma, trauma of uncertainty, trauma of change. And these are the moments where we're really focusing as much attention as we humanly can on supporting our portfolio founders and, and teams through that change. So what's that mean for the folks that are out there looking for investment? How dramatic is that shift? I, I would say that the amount of time I'm spending on new investments has decreased. I'm still looking at a lot of new investments. Like today, for instance, I have two meetings with companies that I'm engaging with for the first time. But you know, if you look at the actual amount of seed deal velocity that has occurred over the past few months, you see the dip already happening. We are, as an organization, continuing to invest. We're long-term investors. But the amount of time that we have has just been so unbelievably compressed by everything happening. Not to mention the fact that you, know, you and I both have kids running around at home and we're trying to figure out how to, how to manage our own studio team as well through, through this crisis. So the time that I'm spending on those new meetings has, has gone down. I don't have any clue uh, as to how long that will last. but. Um, we plan to continue to invest through the crisis. Despite that, we're just trying to find more and more bandwidth to engage with more founders. I'm curious when you're having these discussions with your portfolio companies, what's the message that you're sending and, or kind of even thematically, like, is there any consistency or is everybody a little bit different? Everyone is a little bit different, but there are certain things that are just universal connections between you know, all of the companies that you know, are in our portfolio. And I think you know, most companies that are in Seattle right now, you know, first of all, we, we've never seen anything like this in our lifetimes, right? You know, I'm, I'm the youngest partner at our, at our firm. My partners are 15 to 20 years older than me. They've lived through multiple cycles, more than the one or two that you and I have. And this is, you know, it's not just a financial crisis, it's health crisis, it's a family and security crisis, it's a mental health crisis that hits everybody, every team member of every company uh, on every life level. And, you know, right now, beyond the sort of one-on-one -on -one support that, you know, we're all trying to provide management teams and help them do it with their employees, there's also this big existential operational change that almost every single company is having to go through right now. We've always partnered with founders who share an ethos of, hey, yeah, growth is important, but smart growth is just as important. You want to couple that growth with sound fundamentals. You want to be able to control your destiny. But even founders who've embraced that ethos wholeheartedly have taken their 2020 operating plans and have just thrown them out the door, like every single one of them. And so as we work with, you know, companies to navigate that change, yes, we're still focusing on, gosh, how do you grow your company? How do you achieve milestones to get to your next round of financing? Yes, you have to have strong unit economics, strong fundamentals, but the one metric 
that has really just jumped out for everybody is just the cash on your balance sheet. It's almost a cliche, right? Like every business school textbook explains cash is king, cash is king. In this era, over the past two months, cash feels like it's become this all-powerful God and everyone's trying to find God. And, and so how do you extend your runway? How do you address you know, the different layers of uncertainty that, that exist out there? And uncertainty, you know, being again, sort of the, the word of the season, there's four levels to it right now beyond the more personal you know, relationship side of it, you know, first there's just time, you know, how long do you need to be able to continue um, operating this way? How long will this crisis last? How much runway do you really need? Most companies right now, I think have settled on the notion that if you have 18 to 24 months or somewhere in that range, you're putting yourself in as good a position as possible to weather the storm. The second level of uncertainty is just what what's going to happen with our customers if you're a company selling into other businesses gosh when signature authority from cfos is going to be applied to lower and lower transaction amounts and lower acvs decision making is going to take longer and transactions may be smaller and what does that do to your plan for the year if you're a consumer company selling you know a a, a non-essential product that relies upon consumer discretionary spend that's softening. What does that mean in terms of how you, how you invest in marketing over the next few months? So there's the time piece, there's the customer piece. Then there's sort of the future fundraising piece that we're trying to help our companies work through. What milestones will you actually need to be able to raise that series A or that series B? Nobody knows anymore. No one has a clue what that's going to look like or what the venture ecosystem uh, is going to value or, or prize in the next year and a half. Um, so that's a bit of a mystery that we're, you know, spending a lot of time connecting both internally as a team, but also with other funds to get our arms around. And then lastly, I think that the, the fourth layer to this is, is just what will the venture ecosystem specifically look like uh, at the end of this year and in 2021? Um, will funds be investing aggressively? Will they be open for business as everyone says they're going to be? Or is the bar just going to be so much higher that you're going to see a lot of startups left in the dust? We're trying to work through all four layers of that with every founder in our portfolio right now. And, you know, a lot of times there's good counsel we can give, but a lot of us are are scratching our heads ourselves as to how this whole situation will evolve. Well, how do you avoid, I, I love the, I love the four layers to that that you described. The challenge with all those layers is there's so much uncertainty, right? Even the one that you kind of have a hard quantifiable answer to, which is the 18 to 24 months of time, right? There's such a mystery in all of these layers. Totally. So given that, how do you counsel people to think through that, you know, knowing that so much is unknown across all four of those dimensions? I mean, that, that, is the, that is the secret that I, I wish I, I knew right now. I think all VCs wish, wish they you know, had had their arms around that better than they do. I think for the first time in, in at least you know, 10, 10, 12 years, founders are in the position where you know, they have to make decisions with a lot of conviction and with a lot of speed. 
and despite all of that uncertainty. And so there's certain tactics that, you know, we're trying to work closely with founders to provide not only support, but coaching around as they take on some of those changes. I could definitely see people getting frozen with all that uncertainty. And it's interesting that you kind of called out conviction and speed as a principle (laughs) to go back to in the face of all this uncertainty. Are there any other principles that you are coaching people on or coming back to for how to deal with this? I don't know if you've experienced this at all, but you know, the idea that most of the conversations that we're having right now are happening over uh, platforms like Zoom, where you're face-to-face over video and you see into someone else's home and you know, their family, they're making special appearances. There's this whole other level of humanity in these interactions that's I've felt personally emerge over the past couple of months. And with that, there's been, I think, a renewed focus on mental health and some of the more interpersonal and human dynamics that come not only in leading an organization, but also being someone who works at a company that is dealing with a lot of this uncertainty. We're spending a lot of our time focused on mental health in our portfolio. For any CEO or founder in the best of times, as you know better than than anyone, that role of CEO or of founder can be one of the most naturally isolating roles that there is. When you are going through this crisis that is hitting you on, on every level, on every dimension, personally and professionally, who you are and how you deal with that both in and outside of the context of your role as CEO is suddenly so much more important. So we've been working really hard to not only help CEOs forge connections with each other in our portfolio and outside our portfolio, but we're trying to convene everybody very regularly. We're trying to point out uh, professional resources for folks to get third-party professional unbiased support. One of our board members, Brad Feld, who's a VC down down at Foundry Group in Colorado, wrote a great blog post recently saying uh, that this is really a three-pronged crisis. It's a financial crisis. It's a health crisis. But just as importantly, it's going to be a mental health crisis. And we've really felt that in, in engaging with founders across our community at large. And it's become a really core component of how we're trying to not only support our companies, but open up lines of communication around those kind of topics that are suddenly you know, all the more relevant than they even were before. How did those conversations actually look where maybe a founder entrepreneur is feeling the stress and uncertainty? They have to make all these big decisions quickly. And what is the internal dialogue that they have around you know, staying calm or maintaining a long-term view? And how's that dialogue show up when they talk to you? It feels that you know every conversation that, that whether I'm a part of it or not, but every conversation that that opens up over a, you know a Zoom or a Microsoft Teams meeting right now begins with how are you doing? What's going on? We have a lot of folks in our portfolio who have been directly impacted by COVID nineteen, whether it's a family member or someone is not feeling well, and boy, that really takes on a whole new scary jarring meaning when when you're in the thick of of a pandemic like this. So I think that norm has has really created a different foundation to build a lot of the conversations off of. 
the fact that productivity is now so deeply determined by what your home situation looks like, how old your kids are, are they doing, uh, are they doing virtual learning or are they running around at the age of two um, taking up a lot of your time? You know, all, all of these factors are now just completely blended uh, in a way that they obviously weren't before. And so these conversations can be, I think, a lot more holistic because the factors that actually determine your level of productivity or what meeting you can take when are now so interconnected with all these other elements of your life and your family and you know, really personal topics. It's such a refreshing point of view to have to think of the humanity and the mental health side of this, as opposed to just the income statement and the balance sheet as an investor. Is that something that you guys discussed and talked about across um, your partners as this crisis materialized? Or how did your approach on that kind of come about? I think I feel this way. I think my partners all feel this way. Companies are they're made up of, of people. They're made up of humans. It's especially relevant to how you think about a company when you're in the early stages to understand the who. Who's there? What challenges and opportunities do they face? One of my, one of my favorite books that I read when I first started in the venture world is a book by a professor by the name of Noam Wasserman, who wrote a book called Founders Dilemmas. And he reviews all of these early stage companies, I think thousands of them. Some of them were incredibly successful. Others were just total wipeouts. And you know, he did a survey um, of all the founders of all these companies and he asked them a simple question. He said, you know, if, if you were to point to the one thing that led to your success or failure, what would it be? And 89% of the responses pointed to something related to a relationship, relationship on the founding team, relationships and communications across the organizations, across the organization that began at the very earliest stages. So you know, as an operator turned investor, I think that the human component of this has always felt very salient to me and something really important when considering an investment in a company, but it's taken on a whole new level in this environment. And as a result of that, it's something we talk even more about as a partnership than we even did before. That's so interesting and love how that's kind of coming to the forefront as kind of a gift in a hard time. I'm also curious to hear, you know, that that sort of sounds like something that hasn't changed, right? That the importance of relationships, if anything, it's just amplified. What are other things that haven't changed in this time? We've been really lucky to get to partner with founders that have been just phenomenal community leaders that have been community-minded, that, that care about the impact of their companies, that care about the footprint that they're, that they're making here in Seattle. I'd say that that's been a really heartening consistency to see. We've had a lot of you know, founders and CEOs in our portfolio and members of our team continue to do that, but in a more amped up way, whether it's volunteering, whether it's making donations or gifts, whether it's getting involved to support small business, that has continued, but I think it's being received in you know, a much, 
a much louder and, and more weighted way than it ever has before. One of our uh, portfolio founders started an initiative really early on in this crisis, right as the interventions at the and the governor's office began to get everyone to buy gift cards in restaurants that surround our building since no one was going to be able to buy lunch there anymore. We have folks that were involved in, in uh, the creation of the All in Seattle initiative to help people channel where their um, donation money ended up going through this crisis. A lot of us are involved in community boards that are focused on healthcare workers and you know, frontline essential employees across the region. And seeing that continue, but suddenly has so much more importance has been just an inspiration and joy. Um, you mentioned the idea of it being a gift. Like it, it's hard to think of many gifts out of this crisis, but to see that continuity begin to take on a whole new level of, of importance to our community has been just really comforting and, and heartening to see. Yeah, that is super inspiring. I've seen a lot of that activity and it's impressive to see people rally around and for the community. Have you seen any other kind of inspiring innovation or pivots or new projects materialize in the last four to six weeks? Yeah, ab absolutely. I mean, part of the beauty of, of this studio that we operate, you know, Pioneer Square Labs itself, is you know, we've got you know, almost 25 employees across engineering, design, data science, product, marketing, ops, finance, recruiting, all these sort of core competencies that are really just focused on how do we innovate, how do we create change. And I would say that a significant number of new projects that our studio has been working on are now entirely created through the lens of, of the COVID-19 pandemic, whether it's how do we think about opportunities in healthcare data, whether it's uh, distribution of testing, whether it's what's the world going to look like when we all go back to work. There's about three or four new projects that have emerged just in the past month and a half or so that have been entirely uh, inspired by and, and in a lot of cases driven by the challenges that our community and so many communities are facing. We'll probably, I think, be able to share more about some of them over the course of the next few weeks, but it really has had an impact in the kinds of, of categories and themes that feel really important, not only to us as company builders and creators, but also to, to society at large. I'm really excited to hear what some of those projects look like. Have, are there any themes that you can share? I mean, you mentioned what does the world look like when we go back to work? Are there any other questions like that that are guiding your innovation or other themes that you guys are looking at for, let's say, what the world looks like a year from now, five years from now? You know, it, it's funny. I was just talking to one of my colleagues, uh, Ben Gilbert, who's uh, one of the founders of PSL. We were looking at a company, oh, I don't know, maybe five, six months ago. And they're a really cool company. One of the things that was unique about it was the fact that they had a team, well over a dozen people, that was entirely remote. And not just, hey, everybody's working from home. It's that everybody was in a different time zone. And I remember having this conversation with Ben about this. And I was like, Ben, I don't know. I mean, how can that not be just this massive strike and the negative column in terms of collaboration and communication and cultural norms? And, and, 
and you know, Ben you know, pushed back. He's like, you know, Julie, I think this is actually the way things are headed right now. <laughs> like, I think this is going to be the future of, of, of hiring and managing people and collaborating and really encouraging diversity across, across your workforce and across the types of people that you can bring into your organization. And now that we're in the thick of this crisis now, I, I keep bringing it up with Ben. I'm like, Ben, I, you were so right about this. I think that we are going to see a move more toward virtual workforces. When this crisis began, when everyone first had to go home, I remember almost every single person on our team, every founder and management team member in our portfolio had said, oh my God, what are we going to do? Productivity has taken this huge hit. Um, obviously that got even worse when schools closed, but it's amazing what we're able to do and what we're able to, to figure out in terms of finding ways to communicate more crisply, to collaborate more fluidly in the context of these constraints that we've been given. And my prediction is that as people slowly do return to work and whatever time frame that looks like, I think there will be much more open-mindedness up and down the stack of an organization in terms of empowering people to work from home, to work remotely, to be hired remotely, and to collaborate around the world in, in a way that, that we, necess- we wouldn't necessarily have considered as deeply before. And I'm also excited about technologies that can enable that um, even more effectively than they can today. Right. It might be that a year from now, you get very few companies coming to pitch who have a traditional headquarters and office, right? Yeah. I mean, who knows? It's funny. Like, you know, I, when I'm talking with friends of mine at other, at other venture firms that are, that are running their own funds, you know, this question comes up of, you know, would you invest in a startup if you had never met the founders in the third dimension before, if you've never been able to come and see their place of work or shake their hand or read the little body language cues between the co-founders that tend to be really important when you're getting to know an early stage team. A lot of folks are are increasingly open-minded to that. And it's become kind of an existential imperative now that if you're meeting a founder for the first time and you want to invest, like you're going to have to issue that term sheet without meeting them in person. But there are certain funds that are still trying to you know, figure out what would that look like? How would we think about the trade-offs of, of doing that? I think you're going to see a lot, a lot of those VCs, as an example in our industry, shift to that mindset, shift to that being okay. But I think that'll translate across you know, every industry as, as we all return to you know, whatever the new normal looks like. That certainly challenges the convention that you could, you know, ask somebody for several million dollars and they could <laughs> sign a term sheet without ever meeting you. But I suspect we will see deals get done while social distancing is still in place. And that will be certainly an interesting case study. <laughs> I think it's happening. I think, I think it's happening right now. And, you know, to your point around the case study, we'll see how that shifts, how both founders and investors alike view those conversations and decision-making moments as, as they try to get to know each other on both sides in, in this interesting context that we find ourselves in. Right. I mean, I think that plays into recruiting and all kinds of interactions that you have. What do you fall back on as a replacement to the in-person interaction? Well, you know, we're, we're lucky, you know, our, our venture fund, PSL Ventures, it's an, it's an $80 million fund really focused on the seed stage, the really early stage, largely in Seattle, but broadly in the Pacific Northwest. And one of the amazing things about this community is the fact that 
it's always, you know, the, the one degree of Kevin Bacon. Like there's always just one person that, you know, is between you and any person that you're going to meet. So whether that's a founder, whether that's an executive who wants to join one of your portfolio companies, whether that's an employee who wants to join a company in your portfolio, you're always able to pick up the phone and ask, hey, what was it like to work with this person? And, you know, the notion of making that call and in fact making a lot of those calls I think that becomes even more emphasized. It was always really important, but I think for at least me personally, I'm going to be making those extra few calls now in light of the fact that it's just a little bit harder to have that connection when you're connecting with someone over Zoom. And so that kind of, of reference checking, I think will take on a whole new uh, level of priority for me. And I really would hope it does for you know, the founders that, that I'm engaging with too. I, we've always I think tried to make sure that every founder that we partner with or that considers working with us, that they feel like, hey, we really want you to do your diligence on us. This is such a long-term relationship and it's such an in-depth one that your company will, you know, be shaped by. I mean, who's on your board is, is such a powerful thing. I always joke about this with with students of mine at, at the University of Washington. I say, you know, the the average U.S. marriage that starts, you know, in 2020 will last on average five years, given the divorce rate that we see in this country. The average seed investor relationship that you have will last, you know, seven to 10 years. And it's a hell of a lot harder to get out of. So you really want to make sure that you're doing your diligence. And so anything that threatens the, the notion that you can build that, that relationship and, and sense of trust from the beginning is an obstacle. But I think making sure that on both sides, everyone's asking around a lot more can really help mitigate some of that. <laughs> that analogy is hilarious. Wow. What a compelling stat. I had no idea that when you're picking a seed investor, it's actually more long-term than picking who you marry. It's true. And we're harder to divorce. Like we're a lot harder to divorce. So on, on both sides, everyone's got really strong incentives to make sure that, you know, you're going into that marriage feeling pretty darn good about it. Absolutely. Well, that makes sense that you would be ramping up on the reference calls. Where are you getting inspiration from during this time? You mentioned some blog posts Brad Feld had published. You mentioned Noah Wasserman's book. Where else are you looking in terms of mentors or books or other sources for inspiration? Well, I mean, just in light of the the novelty of of the pandemic itself, I mean, I think I suspect you're in this boat too, like trying to read as much as I possibly can about all the different dimensions to it, that the healthcare side, the the epidemiological side of it. Folks who are deeply experienced and educated in fields of study that I have known nothing about matter so much to me right now. They inspire me so much right now. Um, and I think the folks that tend to be you know, the most you know, deeply versed and experienced in these, in these, in these sectors, in these, in these worlds, tend to do a really good job of, of balancing you know, information sharing with the nuance of, of uncertainty that we're currently facing. I would say that at large, if you look at the venture capital Twitter sphere right now, I've been just alarmed by the number of people who speak on matters of, say, epidemiology with such conviction and authority and such confidence that this is the way things are. And I've tried to turn off some of those voices a little bit and focus more on folks like 
uh, say Trevor Bedford at the Hutch here in town, who just does this amazing service, not only for this community, but for the world, given not only the, the innovation that he's developing and the partnerships he's creating across institutions, but also the way he so thoughtfully communicates information about what's happening at a local and global le level with this pandemic. I find that service to be so powerful uh, for this community, and I've been super inspired just by following his blog and his, his posts on social media throughout the course of, of this crisis. Yeah, that's, that's fascinating. I have not followed Trevor, but I, I want to now. I'm glad I asked you the question. Um, so I want to wrap up. I want to just end by just by asking you to give some shout outs to others in Seattle. So I'm curious, first, who in this community are you just a big fan of right now? Oh my gosh, there's just so many phenomenal community leaders that existed before this crisis, community leaders that have been created by this crisis that come to mind. One example is Laura Kleiss, who founded an organization called The Intentionalist uh, not too long ago here in Seattle. Um, the mission of the organization is really to support local businesses generally. But I was blown away uh, by how quickly she mobilized her organization to start supporting small businesses here in town in the context of COVID-19. I mean, it felt like there was barely a case here and she had already built up multiple directories for how can you support local restaurants? How can you support independent booksellers? Then when the shutdown began, you know, how do you, how do you find a, a restaurant that's making takeout or curbside drop-off available and has become just, I think, a, a wealth of information for consumers and small businesses alike as those connections get made. Um, that's Laura Kleiss, her website's, I think, The Intentionalist. It's, it's a great one to check out. Perfect. I'll put that in the show notes. And who's a lesser-known company that you want people to know about right now? Could be a portfolio company or just another Seattle um, company that you like to follow and admire. Yeah, well, so it's one that's actually a little bit in stealth right now, but it's a company called Chipium that's focused on both emerging and established e-commerce companies as they uh, you know, try to navigate the supply chain and logistics in the fraught environment that we're in. It's founded by uh, Jason Murray, who is a uh, former, uh, former vice president at Amazon who oversaw all of you know, Amazon Prime and retail core services. He partnered up with Mac Brown, who was a former vice president of supply chain tech at Zulily, and they're building a really cool product to help uh, retailers and e-commerce companies really address the needs of consumers real time as they you know, try to get you know, essential and non-essential goods and services delivered to their, to their homes, both now and, and beyond. So a company called Shipium, they're, they're going to, I think, share more about what they're doing in the, in the coming months. But it's, it's interesting how the power of e-commerce has really become this, this existential priority for so many families all over. And it's exciting to see some of the work that they're doing. They actually, they are a portfolio company. We, we led an investment in the company uh, toward the end of last year before all of, uh, all of this happened. Thanks for those shout outs. Such good stuff happening here. I love learning about new people and, and companies to follow. For anybody listening, as we wrap up, Julie, where can they find you online? Where should they follow you or connect with you? Yeah, um, I'm on Twitter, at Julie Sandler. Also, uh, www.psl.com is the website for Pioneer Square Labs. And we share a lot of the 
work we're doing across new projects as well as portfolio companies there. When you said that, everybody's dreaming, man, I wish I had a three-letter .com domain. <laughs> you know, it's funny. When I talk with anybody outside of the region under the age of, say, 35 and, and say PSL, they say, oh, like pumpkin spice latte? Is that another Seattle shout-out? Uh, we'll, we'll take it every time if it, if it helps people remember. So, so yeah, we, we were very fortunate to land that domain name. Thank you so much for your time, Julia. I really enjoyed the conversation. Likewise, always great to talk with you, Adam. Thank you so much for doing this.